Um, this last series, what we're going to do the next three weeks and my final three weeks together with you guys is kind of like final business. It's, it's stuff that was still remaining that need to be done. Um, we've been working towards rolling out church membership over the last year, um, but I hadn't really had a chance to kind of explain what membership is. And so we're going to take three weeks and look at this idea, and we'll begin today in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. There should be a Bible right in front of you in the back of the pew. If you use the index at the front, you can find the New Testament Gospel of John and open up to chapter 13. And here's the thing. When I hear the word membership, I think of country clubs. And, and there's a reason for that. My dad managed country clubs most of my growing up. And so when I think of membership, I think of status. I think of the fact that I had to put on a pair of slacks to visit my dad at church or at, at work. I, I think of the fact that although my dad managed the country club, he was frowned upon for playing golf on the course because he was not a member. Okay? I, I think of membership and I think of high dues and privilege. So another way I think of this is like um, Spotify or other services where there's a freemium model. Do you know what I mean? Freemium is where you just sign up and you get everything for free, but if you pay your dues, you get all the benefits, okay? And I think those are kind of the two major models. When we hear the word membership, that's what we think of. We either think of, of status for, for the upper echelon, for the extra special, or we think of benefits. Like, this is how I get to the good stuff. And the, the, problem, uh, the problem with those concepts is they're very far removed from what I want to talk about this morning. So far removed, actually, sometimes I use a made-up word to try and express what we're talking about, and that's the word memberment, Okay. And, and I'm thinking of this word because you all know what dismemberment is, right? If you lose a part of your body, you've been dismembered, okay? And so what the Bible says has happened, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you also belong to the church, the body of Christ. You've become a member of the body, okay? And so membership isn't for extra special Christians. Membership isn't for the truly committed. Membership is just a way to describe what it means to be a Christian, okay? It means that you've just joined the body of Christ. But because the way that your interaction with the body of Christ is made visible and tangible is with a local church. Membership isn't just about your connection to all the Christians who have ever lived in any place and any time. It's expressed ultimately in relationship with particular Christians in a particular place and a particular time. Because of that, the language of membership is still valuable. So I want to take a couple of weeks and look at it from a few different angles. And this morning, I want to talk about membership in the context of community. And there is no better place to do that than here in John chapter 13. Let me lay out what's going on. So this is the last dinner Jesus has with the disciples who he's gathered around and have been traveling around with him, learning of him, serving with him, and the ones that he is going to appoint that we know as the apostles, right? The ones who write most of the New Testament, the ones who oversee the church that Jesus leaves after he ascends. It's these people, and this is kind of his uh, last time to communicate with them prior to his arrest, death, burial, and resurrection. 
And so if you read through 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, it's all about preparing them for what's coming. It's a handoff, if you will. It's a, this is who I've been, and this is who you will be. This is, this is what I've done, and this is what you'll be doing. It's a handoff. And so here, he kind of lays everything that follows under a single heading. Okay? In fact, it's such an important, uh, important point that he wants to make. He opens it with saying, I'm going to give you a new commandment. That's significant. Right? I'm going to tell you to do something new. Today you have new homework. Today following me has a new requirement. Today I'm going to add upon the foundation of all that the Old Testament commanded and sum it up in a way, but in some way it's not just a summary, it's new. Okay? And so notice what he says here in chapter 13, starting in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. God, we could spend weeks meditating on these two verses. In fact, we know that the authors of the New Testament regularly meditated on these things because they quote it over and over again. It is core, it is foundational, and you say here, Lord Jesus, that this is definitive for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes and open our hearts to your word, and you promised Jesus back in Matthew 16 to build your church. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to call into existence new members of your body, individually members of Christ and members of one another, and that you would cultivate a community of disciples who love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he he makes two statements in these verses. The first is he calls these 12 that he's having dinner with, to love one another. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment, love one another, and then he clarifies, he qualifies that statement, and he says, there's a way that I want you to love one another. And he doesn't say as friends. He doesn't say as brothers and sisters. He says, love one another as I have loved you. He says, in the same way that I have shown love for you, so also you should love one another. Okay? And John, who's sitting in the room right now, he unpacks this for us in 1 John, and he puts it this way. He says, if Christ gave his life for us, if what love looked like was while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you, why wouldn't we take care of one another's most basic needs? Okay, He's he's drawing a comparison from big to small. If Jesus loved us in self-sacrificial, putting others first love, then how do we love others like Jesus loved us in the same way, okay? So that's the first part. And then I want you to notice what he says there in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do you know who is a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ? What is the defining trait? Now, I don't think this is an exclusive statement. 
I don't think Jesus is saying the only way that you can picture or understand or recognize one of my disciples is by this. But it is a defining way. It is a clear way. It is a visible way. Okay? And notice again what he says, by this they will know. In fact, not just they, but notice, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How big is that category, all people? It's everybody. That's what the phrase means, right? And so by this, people who are not Christians will recognize Christians by the way they love one another. By this, Christians will recognize each other by the way they love one another, right? This is, this is the presenting evidence that you have been saved by Jesus and are one of his followers, okay? And the first thing I want you to notice this morning is that discipleship as it's understood here, happens in community. It has to, right? This trait requires another to one another. It requires other people. It doesn't envision here individual, hermetically sealed Jesus followers who are defined by A, B, and C. It recognizes a community here. A community of followers who in some way need one another so that they can even be recognized as followers of Jesus. Do you see that? This is central and it is difficult for us to get in our modern American age because we are tremendously individualistic. Okay? I remember reading a book once and it described uh, three ways of viewing humans in relationship. And the way that it described the modern American view is like billiard balls on a pool table, okay? Each individual cue ball, nine ball, six ball, and we impact each other, right? We can bounce each other into the, the bumpers or into the pockets. That's how we tend to think about life, okay? And then there's the Eastern way of thinking, which is like drops of water in the entire ocean, Right? So there's not a lot of individuality, there's not a lot of uniqueness, it's just all part of the same big sea. But for the Bible, for the Old Testament Jews, as well as for Jesus as he's addressing the New Testaments, the image this book suggested, and I think is helpful, is like a rope wound into a net. Individual pieces, but interconnected, totally dependent. And can I just remind you, as independent, as self-made as you are, you only exist because of human community. Even our great example of survival, Robinson Crusoe, would he have survived without society? No. How does he know to build shelter? Because he's seen one, right? How does he know that he needs food and water? How is he mature enough to take care of himself? Because he was raised by a family, right? Human beings are inherently communal. But we forget this so easily as Americans, and so here's how we generally think about Christianity. Christianity is ultimately about my relationship with Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Okay? It's an independent decision, and so the way Christianity plays out then is a bunch of independent decisions we make between Sundays. Between Sundays, it's about the things that I did for Jesus— it's about the ways that I opened and read his word. It's about the way that I've been faithful to the things that he's calling me to do. But Jesus kind of launches the church, if you will, 
Because remember, this is the handoff message to the leaders of the church. He launches it by saying, this will be your defining characteristic. You will be a community, and a community of love for one another that manifests just as I have loved you. Okay. Now, love is a big deal in Christianity. And you can trace the whole thread here, right? Why does Jesus love the disciples? Because love is at the heart and center of the character of God as defined by the scriptures. In fact, John, again, sitting in this room, later he says, God is love. That's how defining it is of his character. How many statements can you make about yourself that are that defining? I am. But even if you can pick one, it'd be hard for us to say, I am love. I am love incarnate. But that's exactly what Jesus was. When you walk, watch as the way he goes about his ministry, he is constantly aware of people, compassionately seeing their needs, meeting their needs. When he talks with someone, have you read the conversations he has with a, with a widow who's mourning her son as they're walking down the street with uh, a sister who's weeping because of the death of her brother Lazarus, with a prostitute who's just bowed down at his feet, with a foreign woman who's begging on behalf of her demon-possessed daughter. Every one of these individual conversations, what do you find in Jesus? You find love. But the greatest act of love, of course, is still to come. If you want to know that God is love, by this, John says, we know that God loves us because he sent his son to die for us. While we were the enemies of God, Christ died for the ungodly. That is the definition of love. It flows through that, but it also, as we see here, flows through the character of God, through the incarnation of Christ, through the redemption, through the cross of Christ, and into the community of those who follow him. It is a community that is defined by love. Okay. And so what I'm suggesting to you is when you become a Christian, as I said earlier, you become a part of the body of Christ. You become a sheep who's now a member of God's flock. You become a stone in the holy temple that God's building. Does this imagery sound familiar? The New Testament is full of this language, okay? But all of those images are joining a community images. They're a part of the whole community uh, a part of the whole images. They're coming together to be part of a new family. Even when the New Testament talks about the new man, okay, the word there is the collective man, humanity. It's not just you become new, it's you become a part of a new human race in Jesus Christ. And so what do we find when we get to the book of Revelation? Do we find a bunch of studio apartments set up in heaven so we can live our individual and satisfying lives? No. We find a multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and language gathered together collectively in worship of Jesus who saved them. We find a city miles and miles wide and long and even high filled with people and God and Jesus dwell in the midst of them as a community. This is what it's all about. Okay. Now again, this statement, love one another, is so controlling that it is repeated over ten times across the New Testament. Paul says it. Peter says it. John says it. 
They all return to this idea because it was the marching orders that Jesus had given. But I want you to recognize that when we put this all together, if Jesus is primary, his first, his defining commandment to you as a Jesus follower is to love one another, then you need another's to love. It's just built into it. And again, all of those images, the image of God building a temple, the image of Jesus having a body, the image of God the Father being a shepherd and having a flock, all of those images are true in one sense of the universal church. It's true of you becoming a part of the community that is past and future, present and local and distant. Right? It ties you to Christians in Iran and in the 1950s and in the 1500s. There is this big thing, but I would suggest to you that the only way that you can truly be a part of that body of Christ is to be a part of a body of Christ. And at the very least, a walk with Jesus that's not connected to a local church is anemic, if not suspect. Okay, you cannot... Do the things that Jesus called you to do without being part of a local church, without participating as a member of the body. Okay. In fact, this is not the only one another in the New Testament. It is filled with language like this. Romans tells us to welcome one another. Paul tells us to serve one another. John tells us to forgive one another. Ephesians tells us to edify one another. Uh, the pastorals tell us to do good to one another. John again says we should confess to one another. Hebrews says to stir one another up to love and good works. Ephesians says to speak truth to one another. Colossians says to sing to one another. Pray for one another. Okay? These statements are stated over and over again. The New Testament writes to a people who are wound up, bound up, tied into a community of other Christians. That's what I mean when I say membership. Okay. And so what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that membership means recognizing that Jesus has joined you to a new community and that that's part of the good news of the gospel. In fact, listen to the words of Paul when he prays for the church in Ephesus. He says, I pray that God would enlighten you, opening up the eyes of your heart so that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. And then second, what is the glorious inheritance in the saints? Not for, he doesn't, he doesn't say, Ephesians, I want you to know that you have a great reward coming. He's, he's saying, I want you to know you have a great reward around you. the glorious inheritance in the saints, that you have been given a new family in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, I want to hit that list again. I want to describe what this family looks like going through these one another's across the New Testament. Think about this. It's a community where we welcome one another. It's a community where we serve one another where we forgive one another, where we edify or build one another up, where we do good for one another, where we confess our sins to one another, where we stir up one another to love and good works, where we speak truth to one another, where we sing to one another, where we pray for one another. Okay? Again, this is a defining trait of discipleship. 
What it means to follow Jesus is to fulfill the one another's. And the way that you grow in Christ is as others do these things for you and you participate in their growth by doing them for them. Do you see this? Okay. This is about the particular and not the universal. Here's what I mean. Just listen to one of these passages. This is from Hebrews 10. Because here's my fear. I can hit this all morning and we will still live like what Jesus is saying here is, hey, when you run into another Christian, treat them a particular way. But listen to this passage in Hebrews 10. This is what he says in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then listen to this. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so he says, gather together and encourage one another daily. That's what he says back in chapter 4. Who are you fulfilling that with? With any Christian you happen to run into? No, he says, don't neglect to meet together. He says, encourage one another daily as you see the day of Jesus' return drawing nearly. Who are you doing that with? Is it just as you fall into, bump into, run into random Christians? It's like, hey, let's, let's have a Bible study right now. You can totally do those things. That's fine, but it's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. And it's not, listen, it's not what Jesus is talking about in chapter, chapter 13. When we hear, love one another just as I loved you, I think we think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And that verse should not surprise us this morning. Not just because you've probably heard it, but because, as I said, we can trace that characteristic of God all the way through our redemption. And so the message we bring to the world is a message of love, an invitation of love. But that is not the words that are in Jesus' mind when he says, just as I have loved you this morning. How do I know that? Look at chapter 13, verse 1. This is the morning of now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Who's that talking about? Is that talking about Jesus' love for the world? No, it's about him loving his own. And it says here, John's own commentary, he loved them to the nth degree, to the very end, to the fullness, utterly, completely. In fact, in just a few hours, while he's burdened with the fact that his death and his experience of God's full judgment is looming, he gets up from dinner, takes off his outer clothing, and kneels down and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Okay. That's what happens in the interim between these two places. What I'm suggesting to you is love one another is a particular love, not a universal love. And so what membership does is it answers the who with clarity. Who are the one another's you're supposed to love? Who are the one another's that you're supposed to pray for? Who are the one another's that you're supposed to confess your sins with, to forgive, to edify? Who are the one another's who are going to hold you accountable, to stir you up to love and good works, to speak truth into your life? Who you're going to sing with? who you're going to open God's word with, who you're going to obey with, 
who you're going to preach the gospel with. Because remember, when Jesus sent them out, did he send them out alone? No, he sent them out in groups. Okay. This commandment can only be fulfilled if you draw a circle around the particular people God has called you to love. Okay. Now, does that mean a formal membership statement? No. Can these things happen without that? Yes. In fact, I want to point out here that even within the church, oftentimes membership in the formal, like sign on the dotted line sense, is mostly about your relationship with your pastors. Any of you who have been a part of a church knows that this can be a version of membership. And so it's to make sure that you give to support the church. It's to make sure that the pastors can hold you accountable uh, if, you're, if you're being wayward and walking away from Jesus. It's about the pastors and what they owe you. And by the way, this is really helpful. I will give an account for those whom are under me. It's really helpful to know who they are. Okay? That's good. But that's not all that membership is. Membership is about the commitment we make to one another. As a group. As a whole. Okay? This is why we're moving towards, instead of a church polity, a way of organizing, a way of administrating, where the pastor is the one who does the ministry and the church is the one who receives it, where the pastor is the one who leads and is responsible for the church, to a model that's sometimes called congregationally ruled and pastor-led. And here's why. Because when you look in the New Testament, when the church in Jerusalem wants to support in church of Antioch, it's the church that sends people with a letter of support. When Paul criticizes the church in Corinth because there is an insane sexual sin going on in their midst, it's the church he calls to hold that man accountable. In Galatians, where there is false teaching going on, it's the church that Paul says needs to resist that teacher and set things right. When Paul goes out on his missionary journeys, it's the church that sends him in prayer and it's the church he reports to when he comes back. I'm not trying to say that pastors have no responsibility in the church. I'm saying that members do as well. Okay, do you hear that? That's what we're trying to move towards. Yes, there is an office of pastor. Yes, there is an office of deacon. But we need to learn, especially in our day and age, the office of member. God has expectations for you. He has plans for you. He has a part for you to play. He's made you a member of the body of Christ and given you a role to play. And that requires a particular community. Okay? Now, again, I said earlier that we are communal by nature, okay? And so this loving community that's envisioned here, we need to recognize that this is something you seek out anyways, okay? Even the most introverted of us, maybe the, the field of scope is a little bit smaller, but we need community. We need other people. And have you noticed human beings gather around absolutely everything, okay? And that's what happens. What we're talking about here is unique, not because it's a community, but because of how that community comes into existence. And what I would suggest to you is, if you don't understand what we're talking about in church membership, the community you build around you will be a lot like you. Because okay? that's the way we are. And so 
you'll gather with the people who root for the sports team you root for, who vote like you do, who have a job similar to yours, who have a similar economic status, who happen to share your race and cultural background. There's lots of things that gather people around. In fact, now we have an expression of forged family right, of recognizing that sometimes people who are in isolation or have lost their own family or have been mistreated or have suffered in a particular way come together and they form a new community. And that community can be one of great support and of great love, and sometimes it puts the church to shame, yes? But every one of those communities is defined by a commonality instead of difference. But the body of Christ is a forged family. The difference is that we haven't forged it. God has. And the difference is what brought us into it is not our assets or our proclivities, but our need for a savior. Okay, And so what we have in common as a church should not be race, economic status. It should not be preference, political party. It should not be the college that we went to or the things that we aspire to, it should be the fact that we were all adopted by the same Father. It should be the fact that we all worship the same life-giving King. It should be the fact that we're all filled with the same Spirit. G.K. Chesterton quipped that you pick your friends, but God picks your neighbors. And he says that's the genius of love your neighbor as yourself, is that you have to love that one not the ones you wish were your neighbors, okay? But it's also true that God picks your church. It's also true that the people that he invites into his kingdom may not have made your guest list, okay? And so, in fact, when it says to welcome one another as Christ welcomed you, that's exactly what it's expressing. What did you bring to the table? What qualified you to cut the line and enter into God's club salvation? Nothing. And yet Jesus welcomes you with open arms. He shows you, you know, uh, entire love and support. It's the joy in Luke 15, right, that rejoices when one lost sheep is regathered and throws a party. Okay, that's welcome. And the welcome is defined by the host and not the attendees. Okay, and so the danger, again, is everybody loves this idea of loving community, but when we gather around our affinities and these types of things, we fall short of, and because of that, we fall shallow of the community that God envisions. And the church is prone to this, is it not? I mean, America alone has a long history of segregated churches. Martin Luther King Jr. said the most segregated hour in America was Sunday mornings. Okay. We, we know what this is like. In fact, many of us who weren't around in the 60s in the civil rights movement were around in the 90s where the church planting philosophy was the HUP, the homogenous unit principle. The idea here was people already gather around people like them, so let's plant churches for hipsters. Let's plant churches for middle class. Let's plant churches for this ethnic group. Let's plant churches for wealthy suburbanites. And we eventually filtered out and the church lost its manifest diversity, the mosaic of the body of Christ of neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but all one in Jesus Christ. We lost that because we settled for something less. 
And we can do it in our church. What happens is, this is the church you attend, but my community, it's this small group that I have a Bible study with. It's my women's prayer group. It's, it's the older guys who I gather with who are all retired. It's these types of things. So those are all good, but they're not the one another's. The one another's stretch beyond that, and that's why this circle has to be drawn around a church as a whole in all of its diversity, from children to elderly, poor to wealthy, your responsibility as a member is to one another. Okay. And this brings us to the word that nobody wants to hear, the word commitment. Okay. I think membership is offensive for a lot of reasons, but I think there is no more obvious point nor one that is criticized than this, commitment. Now, I'm just as Pacific Northwest as the rest of you. Putting my signature on a piece of paper is too formal, as you can tell, okay? But what we need to recognize here is that the commitment we're talking about is not optional, it's entailed by the relationship itself. Again, view it this morning just to begin with in the terms of responsibility. What I'm telling you this morning is if you call this church your home, I am responsible. Nick is responsible. Andy, as pastors, we are responsible for you, but you are also responsible for one another. Commitment. Okay. Now listen. You can have a marriage, which is a committed relationship, without a wedding. You can't, okay? But a wedding uh, perfectly makes visible and begins a marriage. As we'll talk next week and the week following, membership is valuable because it gives people a, a door to walk through to say, yes, I want to be a part of this community. Yes, I want to enter into. It makes it more possible for visitors to be here, whoever they are, whatever they're going through, whatever they think about Christ, however they live, they're welcome here. But it also gives them a way to enter in, not just to a walk with Jesus, but to a participata participation in this community, the love one another just as I have loved you community, the discipleship community, okay? Now, there are ways and places where this stuff is just not necessary. If we were trying to do church in, uh, you know, the persecuted context of China or in the midst of Afghanistan, nobody's showing up to the Bible study who hasn't been all in cost too much, okay? But here, it's good to recognize, to formally announce, to present to the church, even in a group this size. Here is a new member who now is part of our community, who we are now responsible for, okay? And so, what I'm trying to say, and what I'm going to repeat over and over over the next few weeks, is that membership is not something the New Testament requires in the way that we're talking about it, formal membership, but it is a definite way to do what the New Testament requires. And I don't really care about the membership portion. I care about being obedient to Scripture. I care about leaning into the one another's and doing it the best way we know how. And as we've seen this morning, the meaning of membership is joining a committed, loving one another community. Okay. Let me read you Jesus' words this morning. For one last time. He says, a new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded this morning of the, um, the words of missionary Leslie Newbegin, who said that the church is the lens through which the gospel is made visible and validated. That when people see how we love one another, it demonstrates the welcoming, wild, forgiving, graceful, merciful, committed love of Christ. And it also validates it. Because there's only one way we could have such a loving community. It's, it's if you are work at work here. If you truly are making all things new. If you truly are making us forgiven. If you really did send your spirit. Because without your spirit, we cannot love anyone but ourselves. And so my prayer for this church is that they would be a city on a hill is that they would be a light that shines in the darkness, that they would be the salt of the world. But let us recognize this morning that the way that that witness is proclaimed is by the way that we love one another. And God, for those who are here and are new, I pray that you would lead them to a church community, whether it be here or somewhere else, that they would find a family where the one another's are fulfilled for them and by them. And for those of us who call this church home, I pray that you would make us more what we are in Christ, that we would grow more and more into your holy temple filled with your spirit, that we would be more and more manifestly a body made up of individual members uniquely gifted for the benefit of the body. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to go out and to seek the lost and add to our numbers whoever you would invite, be they from the highways and hedges, as Luke says, that you would draw them in and that we would recognize them as your children and therefore our brothers and sisters. I pray what would be evident as people enter these doors is that the thing that we gather around the thing that defines us, the thing that has brought us together, that keeps us together, that drives us, is the love of God for each of us as manifest in Jesus Christ and the call to love one another in the same way. We pray that you'd help us with all of this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.